If you have your Bibles, open it to chapter 3 of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to give you one. They're coming down the aisles here in the conference center. You just slip your hand up, and they'll make sure that you get one. I didn't, uh, I didn't do due diligence and find out what page number it's on, so if you're not familiar with uh, where Galatians is, just help yourself to the concordance, and uh, you will find it. Galatians chapter 3. This is week 5, I believe, of our series in Galatians entitled Fighting for Grace. Yeah, keep your hands up, and everybody will find you. Over here, there's some in the corner. A couple weeks ago, uh, Nelson Garrison uh, asked me if I wanted to go to the, the uh, Barrett-Jackson auto auction. Has anybody ever been to that? That is so cool. It just reminds me of everything I want and I will never have. <laughs> Right? Just can't have it. It's funny. So I, he gave me a couple of tickets, and I took uh, one of my sons, and we were walking through. We never saw everything. We were just in love with everything. And I found the car. And, and I said, that, that car right there is what my parents had when I was way younger than you. And everybody has a moment like that. That's the color. That's the type, the model. And this was a two-door old Ford. We had eight people in our family and a basset hound. Okay, and my dad was a missionary pastor, so he believed in going, didn't matter where, but we could get there in a day, right? <laughs> and, and so we would load the family into a two-door stick shift, four in front, four in back, and a dog in the middle, and if you were lucky, you could sleep on the back deck lid, you know, behind the room. Everyone slept back there at some point in time in their life, and we did that journey, and, and there would be moments in a, a trip across the country, let's say, in an in 18-hour span, um, where there'd be tension. Somebody would cross the political boundaries of space. Someone would get into your turf, right? And you'd have to defend it, otherwise they'd get all of it. And, and I remember my dad saying this multiple times over many, many years. What are you fighting about? You ever hear that? What's the problem? You know, you, you should know. You're like 14 inches from the problem. You're in the front seat. It's sort of like uh, the question Paul is asking. It's kind of why we entitled this series in Galatians, Fighting for Grace. Because some people would look at this issue of grace, and specifically as it's going to be defined here for us today, and say, what's the big deal? What are we fighting about? And maybe fighting's a little bit too exaggerated of a term to use for things like doctrine or whatever. But let me just tell you something today. If we can't fight for grace, the church ought to just lay down and go away. Because it's everything to us. Grace is why we live, why we breathe, why we have our being. There's no hope without grace. Grace alone. And by the way, we're going to defend just the exclusivity of grace and nothing else. And so Paul makes an argument. And if you've been here for the last several weeks, we've been working our way through it. There's this group of people called the Judaizers. These are, and I use this term loosely, Christian Jewish folks, teachers are saying that you can have Jesus, but you need to add a little bit to Jesus. You need to have the Mosaic law. Specifically, you need to have circumcision as a part of this deal between God and man and Jesus, and that'll complete the deal. And so they showed up in Galatia, and they're teaching this, this error to this church. These are a group of people that Paul loves. He formed this church kind of out of his own spiritual bare hands. He loves them. Um, they're his kids in a sense. He's told them of God's grace and God's forgiveness. They received it. They believed it only to have these liars come in and deceive them. And Paul gets defensive. He gets righteously angry. You ever been righteously angry about anything? I can get angry about everything. I've, I don't have a lot of moments where I've been righteously angry. 
But Paul is righteously angry about this so much so that in, you hardly get very far into the first chapter, he pronounces anathema on these people, not once but twice. Anathema, damned to hell forever if you add to grace alone. In the passage we're going to look at today, he calls them fools. In chapter 5, he says, well, if you believe circumcision matters, then why don't you go all the way and emasculate yourself? Remember when we did a study on Paul, and I tried to give you a visible picture of Paul, and I used the person of Mike Gitka? Here he is. He's righteously angry, and he's saying what he thinks. He's defensive for these people. He's defensive for the gospel, appropriately so. This is a big issue, grace alone. I struggle sometimes uh, the pace in which we go through letters like this because they were never intended to be read over three months. This is a letter, like any letter you'd get in the mail. You'd open it and you'd read it and you'd get the big idea. You'd get the point. This is about a big spiritual doctrinal issues that, that either separates or brings together God, a holy God, and sinful man. It's everything. Everything we believe in rise and falls on this. And so when we break it up, sometimes we can miss the big picture. So we've got this big giant screen here (laughs) with the letters on there fighting for grace. That's what it's about. This whole thing is about Paul's defense for these people he loves, for this doctrine that's absolute and necessary for sinners like us, okay? Get the big picture. That's, That's where we've been. This wonderful story of grace, of a loving God, who by his own choice decides to rescue and reach down from heaven and rescue a sinful, broken, dead, fallen, unresponsive people and redeem them for himself because of his love. The Bible says, and I've never met anybody who disagrees with this, the Bible says all have sinned. Every unbeliever friend I've ever had doesn't disagree with that. But we got to be really clear about what that means. It doesn't just say that every person who ever lived has chosen to sin, singular. It's saying that every person who's ever lived is a sinner, tainted and twisted in every perspective that he has, in every behavior that he has. He's a sinner. He's jacked up from top to bottom, right? It's far worse than you thought. It's not that you got this event or that event or this thing or this problem. It, It isn't just that easy. You're a sinner, and that's all you can do. You're dead, as the Bible says. You don't want God. You're stuck in sin. You're enslaved. You're chained to it, and you can't get out. That's how bad the problem is. And that's where God dives into time and space and redeems us. He saves us. He buys us back. He intercedes. He came to die our death. He satisfied his own wrath on our behalf. Amen, church? That's, that's this story. And so the point of salvation, what we're going to be very specific about here, is that salvation is all totally a work of God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We don't understand it. We can't cause it. We can't lose it. There is nothing about salvation that has a, a God plus you at all. You get it? It's all a work of God. Salvation is is all from him to us. He is the author, the mediator, the sacrifice, the forgiver. He's the restorer of this brokenness called sin. And it has nothing to do do with you. So let me just give you another picture. You and I are simply the target of his grace. We're the bullseye. That's what we bring. We're the need, and he's the solution. We're the problem. He's the solution, amen? 
It's all wrapped up in us. So you might be able to look around. This is where it gets confusing. We try to measure each, each other based on this horizontal perspective. We look around a room and go, clearly I don't have as many problems as they do. You watch reality TV and you thank the Lord that you're not like they are. But, but you don't have the luxury of comparing yourself to reality TV. You have to compare yourself to a holy, transcendent, awesome God. And the Bible says we all fall No matter how good you might be here, you're not like him. And that's his standard. In fact, the scriptures make it very clear. The best that you can offer him looks like filth to him. That's how big the problem is. So if it isn't all the work of God, what can we bring to it? More problems, right? More sin and more selfishness and more idols. It has to be God alone. We're the target of God's grace this, this amazing story, it never, I never get tired of telling it, ever. Sometimes when we're preaching through things and thinking through communion and leading songs, and they go, man, it's one thing. It's always one thing. And I go, I, w- I wonder if they're tired of hearing it. Well, tough beans, because that's all we've got to talk about. There isn't anything else to say other than God did it all. It's called amazing grace because he did. Amen, church? Amazing story that Paul is defending. We've entitled the series Fighting for Grace because it's a serious letter about a serious, serious topic. Paul fights for grace and so should we. And we're going to look at personal ways that we can fight for grace. I doubt very seriously you're ever going to be brought into a church leadership denomination discussion about doctrine. So you might think, well, how does this apply to me? Paul's defending against Peter, the rock of the church. What is the gospel? I don't, have a, I don't have a platform like that. Well, yeah, you do. It's going to look at your own life. It'll look at your parenting. It'll look at everything in your life. A, a person who understands the gospel is grace alone changes everything about what we do, how we interchange with God, how we interplay with each other. It's an amazing story. So we're going to look at that this morning. Um, but let me give you a quick review, rewind on what we've seen so far. Paul in chapter 1 expresses amazement. Well, that's not even, amazement sounds too positive. Astonishment, flabbergasted, disappointed and angry that these people would now trade in grace for legalism. It's like his people, his beloved children are going, let me put on the yoke of slavery again because I'm adding a little bit of law and circumcision to Jesus alone. And so he's astonished that they would go there. He's heard that the Judaizers, in order to make their point, have questioned his authority. They've undermined his authority. So he spends the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 defending his authority, and then he proves it by a confrontation with Peter, this leader of the church. He confronts him on two issues, hypocrisy and that he's chicken, that he's afraid of a man. Peter, you're bailing out, and you quit simply because you were afraid of what they thought of you, not because you changed what you believe. It's a, hip, it's a hypocrite. So here P, Paul steps up, demonstrates his authority, leads it. Now he starts in chapter 3 making his point. He's going to start making his point about grace alone in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So before we go any farther, let me read this in its totality, and then we're going to give you a quick, simple outline to remember it. Chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? 
Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let me give you the quick snapshot outline, right? There's four key words in verse 1. There are four key questions in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5. And there's one key illustration he uses from that point on, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Four key words, four key questions, one key illustration. Let's look at those words to begin with. The first, or the second word in my text, you, what's yours say? Foolish, foolish Galatians. Uh, that word actually means you who do not think. Uh, we would probably use a modern vernacular like brainless um, to describe what he was trying to get at. Um, not that you don't have a brain or that you're somehow incapacitated, that you can't think this through, that you clearly know what's different and you choose to do something else, right? You aren't thinking. You're not applying what you know. Um, this had to sting a little bit. I've only had one person in my life tell me um, that I'm stupid. It was my wife. Before she was my wife, so I cut her some slack on that, but I was at a Bible college the first week, first time I ever met her. There's, I saw her walking across the parking lot, and I said, she's awesome, you know? And you don't know anything, you just know that you know that it's worth pursuit. So game on. And uh, we had this old camp, it wasn't like a college, You'd, you would laugh at me if, if I said it was a college and you saw it. It was just a bunch of World War II army barracks in this field in Colorado, okay? That's the way schools, Bible colleges started way back in the 40s. And they would put all these buildings up. And I had one little barracks that was my dorm. And outside that dorm was myself and Suzanne, my wife. And there was this other guy in my, in my cabin. And there was a sawhorse there. And we were out there talking. And for whatever reason, it made sense to me to suggest doing a backflip off the sawhorse. I've never done a backflip in my life. And I've only done one since. So, um, and I don't know what I was thinking. Like, me, you know, she's probably into backflips. So... <laughs> This will be an open and shut case, right? <laughs> Should be wooed by my flipping. I don't know what I was thinking. Clearly, I wasn't thinking. I jumped up on the sawhorse, said I could do a backflip, jumped off, bashed my head into the sawhorse, nail cut my ear. So I'm laying on the ground. It's like one of those cartoons, you know, and the birds are circling their heads. Because I was out of it. Like, it knocked me senseless. And all I remember, I was at least aware enough to hear this. Boy, that was stupid. She was saying exactly what Paul is saying, brainless. You knew better than that. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Was the whole point of it? I can imagine the Galatians going, whoa, 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 whoa. This is, this is our pastor. This is our leader. This guy has fed me. This guy developed me, and he's calling me brainless. Like, this is a big deal. This got, this got the point home. You foolish, unthinking, not using what God gave you, Galatians. Second word I want you to see is he says this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's the second word, bewitched you. It is basically uh, has this idea, to give someone the evil eye, to, to cast a spell over, to fascinate by holding someone spellbound by an 
irresistible power. Now, he is not suggesting here that someone cast a spell on the Galatians. He's just saying that the argument or whatever the speech was was so winsome, it just kind of spellbound them, right? And I was, watching, uh, I was watching TV the other day, and I saw David Blaine. Have you ever seen David Blaine, the, the street magician? This is a guy that goes out in the street with cards and whatever, and he does tricks right in front of everybody. Everybody's circling him, so it's really hard to hide, you know, the trick, you know? There's nothing behind his back because everybody's behind his back. But what's amazing is they actually believe it's magic, right? They believe something hocus-pocus is happening, and all he's doing is a really good sleight of hand. You know that, right? And that's sort of what, what Paul has in mind here when he's saying, listen, who, who turned the thing on its head for you? Like, who bewitched you? Who convinced you of a lie? Who did that to you? See, see Paul knew, and we know, that no one had cast an evil spell, that these false teachers had just come in and subtly added, right? They didn't subtract. They didn't call Jesus dirty names. They didn't mock the cross. They just simply added, yeah, Jesus, but the law. And you might look at that and go, Paul is totally overreacting. Like, you're not going to win friends and influence people with that kind of reaction. You need to just chill and make it a little bit softer. But listen, this tells you in volumes of how serious it is for Christians, the church, to defend grace. You would think everybody would hold on to it with white knuckles because it's the greatest news you ever heard, but we're always giving it up. We're always giving it up, and so we have to defend it. These people gave it up because of some slick talk about adding a little bit of something to Jesus. They were creating, these false teachers were creating a, a Jesus plus gospel, which has been around forever, by the way, which is all over the place today. And if you're not careful, even if you claim grace alone, my guess is somewhere in your life experience, you've gone, I've had a moment of Jesus plus gospel how I've dealt with my own sin and failure, how I've dealt with other people's sin and failure. I've had a Jesus plus gospel going on. And isn't that one of Satan's favorite strategies, by the way? Distortion. Mixing a little lie with truth. That's what he does. He doesn't come out and say, hey, by the way, I'm here to destroy your life. If you follow me, you'll go straight to hell and burn forever. He doesn't sell that story. He sells, listen, I will make you happy. I'll make you whole. I'll give you understanding. I'll make sense of the mess. That's what he offers. He disguises himself as light, doesn't he? He disguises himself as truth. He takes a little bit and adds a little bit, and suddenly we got this thing that doesn't accomplish anything. If you add a little bit of anything to Jesus alone, you lose it all. You can't come to God and say, listen, I don't have a problem with Christ. I don't have a problem with what he did. I'm okay with the, with the cross. I'm okay with the sacrifice. I'm okay with the resurrection, but I'm going to add a little bit of my man-made effort and my striving. And God says, listen, you can't have it that way. I don't offer that version. It comes simply when impoverished, broken, unable, dead, blind people cry help, and he gives it. That's grace alone. Grace alone, you don't, you don't add anything else to Jesus. If you do, you mess it up and you lose it all. Biblical error always comes from two sources, human ignorance or demonic influence. And typically it comes at the same time, both of them. You're not thinking clearly. You're overwhelmed with your circumstances and so you got that human ignorance factor and then Satan climbs in and spurs and says, hey, by the way, I've got an answer to that. Have you ever considered? And he suggests something that's totally blasphemous. And against what God's word says, 
Isn't that the way sin comes into our life, to be honest? I mean, we know, we know the answer to the question that all of our longings are met and fulfilled in Jesus. We know the gospel is the answer. And yet, somewhere in our experience, there has been this question of happiness or justice or rights. And suddenly the gospel isn't enough. Suddenly it's, okay, I got you. That's like a settled past issue that doesn't have present day effects. And so we go, okay, it's Jesus and I gotta be happy. It's Jesus and the other woman. It's Jesus and the drug. It's Jesus and the anger. It's Jesus and whatever. And we're adding to Jesus ways and things that we have to cope because the gospel isn't enough. Not that we'd ever say that. We just live it, right? Isn't that where biblical error comes from? Like, if I were to hand out the test, my guess is that most people who have even half an interest in what I'm saying would pass the quiz, is it grace alone, everyone would say, yes. But then comes the sin that inevitably happens to every believer. Place where we've wandered off and we've, we've listened to the adversary suggests that something that we don't have is what we need to make us happy, Right, And we go get it, and suddenly God does what he does through the Holy Spirit. He leans on his people, not with guilt, because he doesn't do guilt. He leans with conviction, and he leans on his people. But what does Satan do? He twists it. It's not conviction anymore. It is guilt. And suddenly we walk in a room like this after a week like we had, and we sit in a pew and go, I don't belong here. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. I, I know what I'll do. I'll quit. Couple weeks of quitting. Now that wasn't right. Now I'll work. I'll fix it. I'll try harder. Do you see all of those responses are messed up? Every one of them are a Jesus plus gospel. The gospel says you can't, he did, receive. The gospel says that God in his love pursues sinners. It's the kindness of God that brings about repentance in sinners' hearts. Not because he'll be more happy with you or pleased with you so that you can experience the kind of life he has set out for you to have, one of blessing. Not not I'm rich and I have no problems and all my sicknesses are healed. There's a lot of people selling that too. Blessing. Like the blessing Jesus mentions when he first starts preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Like happy is the person who gets his sin and understands God is a solution. Period. Happy. Not because you're healthy or wealthy or all the problems are gone. Because the gospel holds you in all of those stories in life, right? The gospel's the answer. We, we lose ourselves when we start thinking through how to process our sin. Sometimes Satan makes it very clear, there's something I got to do. I've got a lot of friends, and some friends who, who uh, all of my friends and myself included, struggle with sin. Sometimes my friends struggle with big stuff, <coughs> big stuff that has huge consequences. And I watch the cycle of it, right? They could pass every quiz I gave them about Jesus. They just could, but they continue to make their decisions continue to make themselves happy or try to. And I watch this process. I watch the paralysis that comes when Satan uses sin and brings about guilt. And so they don't know how to repent of it. They don't know how to respond to it. And so they tap out, they quit, or they strive, or they try to fix this only to fail again. And the cycle never stops. They're like on this treadmill, right? 
receive grace. The only motivator for life and obedience isn't because you have to, isn't because God smiles on you when you do. It's not because a grumpy, somewhat contentious God wakes up on the wrong side of the bed waiting for somebody to smack around. That's not our God. His love compelled him to leave heaven, take on flesh, and die in your place to say it is finished. You don't add anything to a finished work, amen? And what drives us after that is the motivation of, I can't believe it. I'm that accepted. I'm that loved. I don't have to perform. I want him. I want him bad. I hate my sin. Even when I do it, I hate my sin. God, I'm sorry. He's faithful and just to what? Forgive, end, move, keep growing, keep going. But Satan wants us bogged down in the performance, the religion, the Jesus plus gospel. So we have it in our own lives. There's a third word. We've got to pick up the pace a little bit here. But the third word in the first verse that I want to, to make note of is that word portrayed. Let me read the, that verse again. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. It's a great word. The word you can just have in your mind, a billboard. It was used in the, in the Greek culture of someone who would put up a big display to sell a piece of property. It was like an advertisement idea. And what Paul is saying here is that I painted the ultimate road sign for you about grace. I painted the mosaic of grace. It's the biggest thing you ever saw about grace. I lived my life of grace in front of you. I told you of Jesus about grace. You have this unbelievably technicolor description of grace. It was all laid out right in front of your eyes. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Same thing that has always saved any man. He was clearly seen by my life and my message. There's a fourth word that's key here, and that's the last word, the verse in my text. Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed as crucified. There's an interesting tense to that word, and it's a, it's a perfect tense that has uh, the idea of an event that happened that has ongoing, consistent, never-ending effects. You get it? That's why it's so important to understand this thing, that it isn't crucified past historical event. I have to remember to have any idea what it means. It's a crucifixion that brings about daily, every day, now 2,000 years after the story, effects on people who claim Christ. Crucifixion that keeps on going. Philip Riken says this about this word. If ever there was an event that called for the perfect tense, it was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus was crucified on a particular day by particular men outside a particular city on a particular tree. If we had been there to witness his crucifixion, we could have reached out to touch the cross and picked up a splinter in our fingers. The crucifixion was a factual event in human history. On the cross, Jesus gave his life as the once and for all atonement for sin. According to God's strict standard of justice, sin demanded the death penalty which Jesus paid for us. By God's mercy, the sacrifice Jesus made was uh, accepted as the full price for sin. This is what it means to portray Jesus Christ as crucified. But there is more. God proved that he accepted the sacrifice Jesus made by raising him from the dead. Therefore, to preach Christ has been crucified is not simply to pre preach him crucified. It is to preach him risen. 
Jesus is no longer on the cross. At this very moment, he is the risen and living Savior who is able to grant forgiveness to everyone who believes in him. This forgiveness goes all the way back to the cross, a past event with a present consequence. Paul was upset with the Galatians because they were forgetting all of this. He had laid out for them Jesus Christ having been crucified, but then some of their teachers had come along to write some graffiti on his billboard. You get it? Clearly displayed, like I painted the ultimate mural of grace, and somebody's coming up here and just totally messing it up, ruining this painting and portrait of grace and crucifixion. Those are the four key words that Paul brings up in verse 1, but there's four key questions, rhetorical questions he asks in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. Deep down, the Galatians know what Paul is saying is true. It is by faith alone. These questions were just designed to remind them of what they already knew, just like us. So let's look at it. Verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. First one is the question of beginning. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by, or by believing what you heard? The rhetorical question, you don't even have to answer. Well, it wasn't the law. I believed what I heard. Okay, let's go on to question number two. This is the, the question of completion. Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Wow. No, I, I walked with Christ for a period of time, and I saw all the fruit of that work in my life. So I guess, no, that would not be true. So Paul asks another, a third question, the question of suffering in verse 4. Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Yeah, really, we, we did suffer because of knowing Christ. We, we did have the world push back on the Jesus and us. We did pay a price for following Christ. We did stand out, that's true, and that all came before the law, so I guess no. Last question, rhetorical question, is a question of miracles in verse 5. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Well, he's working miracles. And the essence of all these questions is one question. When did the spirit show up, people? When did he show up in your life? Just answer that question and the argument is over. Because Paul knows what the Galatians know, what we know. When I came to Christ, when God got me, all those things happened. The Spirit came on me. I was transformed. Paul knew what we know. They received the Spirit when they came to Christ. The proof was their life. And I would imagine the Galatians are sitting there going, he's right. He's totally right. Because it wasn't this after we came to Christ and we saw these gifts show up in the church? Like, isn't, isn't John over there preaching where before he couldn't even speak his name? Isn't somebody over here now have the gift of discernment and someone over here the gift of prophecy and someone over here the gift of service and everybody's using their gift to bless the body? Didn't that happen at the, at the moment of conversion when the Spirit came? Of course it did. No law, no Judaizers, nobody's selling them a Jesus plus anything. They have total evidence by their life. These gifts came because of the Spirit. The proof was in their displayed fruit. We're going to see this a little bit later when Paul makes an argument for the fruit of the Spirit, the singular fruit, when God's working in the life of his people, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control come out of a believer's life. Things that weren't there before, motivated, empowered by the Spirit of God, come out of a man. They long for reconciliation 
when before they could live with gobs of tension. That's a spirit's work. They long to love even the unlovely. Where does that come from? The spirit of God. And so my guess is that Paul throws these questions down like a gauntlet and he just wins the argument. Wears them out. Yeah, yeah, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was before. Before these Judaizers showed up. Before they, someone sold me that it was a Jesus plus anything. We saw the work of the spirit. We saw the effects of the fruit. We saw the miracles done in our midst, the the things that could only be done because God was active. It all happened before we heard about this Jesus plus theology. The evidence was clear. And so the Judaizers were suggesting, well, Jesus is cool. We're all right with him. It's a great place to start, but not a great place to finish. So Paul makes his argument that it's, it's not just a great place to start. It's how we live and move and have our being. Uh, John Stott wrote this. I think it's really cool to hear this. They did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, speaking of the Judaizers. But they stressed that you must be circumcised and keep the law as well. In other words, you must let Moses finish what Christ had begun. Or rather, you must yourself finish by your obedience to the law what Christ has begun. You must add your works to the work of Christ. You must finish Christ's blasphemy, unfinished work. However, there's never a need, any need to refinish the finished work of Christ. In fact, trying to do so would ruin his priceless work altogether. And he uses this illustration. It would be somewhat like retracing Babe Ruth's signature on a baseball. Rather than adding to its value, you destroy it completely. Do you understand? Do you get that, church? Grace alone. Fight for grace alone. You add anything to it, you mess up the picture. You mess up the story. You mess up reality. It doesn't work. If you want to go by law, then law will be what you're measured by. And the Bible says every man falls short. You can't go by effort. You can't go by religion. You have to go by grace alone and Christ alone by faith alone. Amen? That's it. It's the best news I ever heard because it's the only thing I can participate in. Let's make this really clear. Just like Paul's making it really clear. All of salvation from beginning to end, not just how a man is justified before the Lord, how a man is sanctified or changed into the image of Jesus Christ, everywhere in our spiritual journey is a work of Jesus and grace, a work of Jesus and grace. When we stand someday in the presence of God, you won't say, I spent those 10 years at Gilbert Campus and I learned so much and I served in children's ministry. He's not going to count that for anything. You're going to stand there and go, Jesus, I don't have any reason to be here but Jesus. I'm a sinner. Please give me what I don't deserve. That's it. Right, church? Grace alone. That's why we fight for it. Paul switches gears. So we've got like four words, key words, help us understand what he's saying. Four like rhetorical key questions and one really killer illustration. The illustration of Abraham, and I took the time to read some of it this morning, and I'm not going to, and I'm just going to give you the address, and in your Bible study sometime, go back to it and read it. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, and if you want to get total uh, context, add chapter 12, 13, and 14 of Genesis as well, you'll get the story of Abram. Um, here, here's the story. God made a promise in chapter 12 of, Abra- of Genesis that, that he was going to give him a land. And, and multiple times in, in the end of chapter 12, beginning of 13, and a little bit of 14, there's promises. We get to chapter 15, and God shows up with the last revealed promise we have to Abraham. Not like they were all different. They were all kind of tied together. God had made a promise, I'm going I'm to do something special with you. I'm going to give you a great 
number of descendants, remember? So in chapter 15, God takes Abraham out after Abraham's whined a little bit. Like, God, you made this promise, but it doesn't look like it's going to come through. And the way I see it now is some descendant, some slave descendant of mine is going to be my heir, and that's how this thing's going to finish. So God, not literally, but figuratively, takes Abraham's hand and walks him outside and says, Abraham, look up. Count the stars. Can you count them? No, God, I, I can't count the stars. Your descendants will outnumber the stars. Really? Bible stops right there. I think it's verse 12, chapter 5. It says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith produced a righteous covering for Abraham. Do you get it? Just like every man, a woman who's ever lived who comes to Jesus. Faith covers so you think that's the end of the story. No, it gets even better than that. Abraham, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go to a goat, get a heifer, get some bulls and cows and birds and stuff, and I want you to bring them back and cut them in pieces. Now, we have to get some culture so we understand what's going on, but in that day, that was like a contract. So let's say I made a deal with you that we were going to make this agreement, this arrangement, and I would keep my end of the deal, you would keep your end of the deal. The way we would sign a contract in that culture was to take these animals, cut them in two, separate the gory buddy pieces, we would join arms, and we would both of us walk between the pieces, basically saying out loud to everyone, let it be done to me, what was done to these animals if I don't hold up my end of the deal, right? So can you imagine now what Abraham's thinking? Oh, I get it. We're, we're signing the contract. God told me to get the animals, Somewhere God somehow, some form is going to show up and we're going to walk between the pieces. This deal that he's promised to make a great nation, a people, what's going to happen here? This righteousness is going to be a contract we sign. So Abraham gets the animal, separates the pieces, and the Bible says that God caused a deep, dreadful sleep to fall on Abraham. Right when Abraham, if there was man-made effort in it, right where he should be stepping up and swelling up and joining up to walk between the pieces, he's out cold. He's absolutely not even in the game. And the Bible says this image is this like pillar of fire and smoke. We know this because the writers tell us this, that it is, a, that it is the image of God that he takes on this image and passes between the pieces with Abraham off to the side dead asleep. You know what just happened, right? God made a promise and he guaranteed it with his existence. And Abraham had nothing to do with it. He wasn't there. Just like every man who's ever lived, you weren't there. When Jesus said it was finished, you weren't there. You didn't have to add work to it. You didn't have to strive for it. You didn't have to have 10 years of obedience or discipleship. You don't have to have anything but Jesus. Amen? Amen. So great illustration. Paul brings these people these Galatian believers, back to an Old Testament story, no doubt that the Judaizers are using to make their point. See, wasn't Abraham circumcised? Didn't Abraham obey all these, these rules and regulations? And Paul uses it just for the opposite. Abraham wasn't there when God made the promise. And by the way, since we're going to finish this deal, it was 12 years later until God asked him to be circumcised as a sign of the promise. So Abraham was credited righteousness when he was out cold, before circumcision, and we'll see next week, some 430 years before there was ever a law given. Do you, do you get it, church? Whatever the Judaizers are saying about Jesus, we're okay, add, Paul just blew it out of the water. They've got no legs to stand on. 
Because the whole point of Abraham's illustration is that man did nothing. He believed and God gave. God gave righteousness to an undeserved man just like he's done to every woman and man throughout history who've ever said, help God, I can't, he gives. We know, we know it's Jesus that, that satisfied God's righteous standard for us. We don't confess anyone else. We don't worship anyone else. It's Jesus alone, God in the flesh, coming intentionally to die for his people. And when he transforms our hearts, we say, I want you and I'll follow you. And the Bible says, no one will snatch him from my hand. And God doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed, angry with his people, disappointed in your behavior. He wants you to be blessed in the sense of walking in obedience and seeing how God moves in those things. And there's grief, which is different than anger about your sin when you choose it over him. But he loves you. He moves on you. He will win you. He won't stop in you. He will finish the work he started in you. That's good news, right, church? And here we are, an, an absolute mess, a bunch of knuckleheads, bumping our way through life, and Satan climbs on as the ultimate Judaizer saying, hey, don't you, think, don't you think God's getting tired of this grace alone thing? Don't you think by now at your age you'd get this sin issue? And don't you think God's growing tired of your act? Don't you think, don't you think before you come to communion every week you'd stop confessing that sin? Don't you think you belong, maybe you're just not real, maybe you have it here and you don't have it here, maybe you should just quit? Has that ever happened to anybody? Maybe just me? Just me. It happens, and it's not true. The ultimate Judaizer tries to convince us that it's Jesus plus something, but the only reason we worship is because it's Jesus plus nothing. Amen? Plus nothing. Pretty good opening argument, I'd say, for Paul. Look at your experience, church. Yeah, you're right, Paul. Look at the scriptures, church. Yeah, you're, you're right, Paul. It's grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's Jesus plus nothing. So can I finish with a couple of thoughts? A couple of so what's? As you're leaving here today, you might, you'd make a big mistake of thinking this is an argument Paul's making to a church in Galatia. He's making the argument to us in Gilbert. So the first so what I want you to think about is uh, uh, just... Just keep your eye on your own Judaizers. Just because you say amen to all this stuff, just because you answer the, the questions and pass the quiz doesn't mean that, he, that they're not there trying to convince you and defeat you that there's something else you need to do. Bad theology, your flesh and Satan want to do nothing but twist the truth, right? And convince you that there's something else. Just like I said, if you go back to the garden... And Eve was sitting there minding her own business and it was the adversary that suggested somehow that God was lying, that it wasn't fully true. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, it was Satan who came and said, hey, you know what, won't God do this? And it was just a twist on the truth a little bit. Just like he might be in here today and we're about ready to take communion, these elements, this cup and this bread. And that voice will pop up and say, God's not happy with you. Push back. What do you push back with? Grace. The gospel. It's finished. Nobody speaks a better word than Jesus. Amen? What is your Jesus plus issue? It would be really stupid of us, brainless of us, 
if we went through this whole thing and we didn't consider what those things are that we may, may be unconsciously or consciously have add to the gospel. So the gospel says more than just how a man is saved. The gospel says how a man is satisfied. What's your Jesus plus issue? Is it Jesus plus my wife's got to be respectful? Is it Jesus plus my husband has to love me like those other men that I see? Is it Jesus plus that, that affair? Is it Jesus plus that pornography? Is it Jesus plus the drugs? Is it Jesus plus whatever? Is it my version of contentment is directly connected to those things that have to happen like the promotion or whatever? So it, it would be pointless if we sat through this thing and didn't spend some time going, God, I call that what you call that. That's idols. Those are sin. I don't want anything else but Jesus. I don't want to be satisfied anything else but Jesus alone by grace alone. Okay? And let me finish with this. This might be a little crass way to say it, but I didn't know how else to write it, so I asked Neil and he approved. <laughs> so we'll blame him. There is only room for one but in your life. When you're sitting here debating with yourself and the adversary to convince you that there's something else you need to add to Jesus, would you just remember this? As, you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And the church said, it's unbelievably true. And so if you walked in here today saying, well, what's the big deal? Like, it's not like we're divorcing ourselves from grace. Why does it need such attention? Because in a nanosecond, without even trying, your flesh, your adversary, or some puny, weak, light-up doctrine will try to convince you that his grace isn't enough for you. It's not enough for your sin. It's not enough for your successes. It's not enough for your happiness. It's not enough for your marriage. It's not enough for your kids or your job or your life or your health. It's not enough. And I'm telling you the reason why Paul defends it and the reason why we have to defend it is the only thing we have to stand on is grace. That's it. That's why we worship that's why these songs sound uh, the like theologically repetitive. Because the fuel of worship is sinners who understand what they don't deserve and what they got lavished on them. Amen? Let's pray and ask for God's presence in our worship. God, we are grateful that you uh, are gracious and loving and faithful. God, I thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. I thank you for... Uh, the Apostle Paul, who makes his point clear. God, I pray that you would help us, help us embrace daily grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We worship no other, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.